Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It's video training for experienced commercial agents. Our show today is titled Site Selection in the New Economy. And if you uh, run a business, lead a business, or involved in any way in commercial real estate, you'll realize that things have been changing. And uh, we have a, a great guest for you today. We have Casey Conway. He's a uh, MAI, he's a CRE, he's a CCIM, and he is also Chief Economist with CCIM Institute. He's joining us in Studio One today. Casey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. And you recently published a, a quarterly report, and, let, and let's talk about it. You're now doing the quarterly report for CCIM, right? That's correct. We're putting a quarterly paper out in conjunction with the University of Alabama and the CCIM Institute. <laughs> yeah. And you recently did a report, Amazon HQ2, a reset button for site selection. And of course, everyone's been following in. I guess the news is going to come out soon, right, of, of, of who they've picked. But, but also, as you've pointed out in this, in this paper, it's going to really change site selection for companies around the U.S., hasn't it? I think so. I think the the process that uh, Amazon went through here, not only did they get a lot of good free publicity out of it, but I think it is going to be a transformative uh, process for site selection. And uh, first thing Amazon did is they made everybody around the world and the United States do the homework for them, right? They said, tell us where we should go and why. Yeah. But I think secondly, it's really highlighting that what companies need today versus what they needed 20 years ago or even 10 years ago is very different. And it's, it really is all about the workforce. Mm -hmm. And of course, what, what uh, communities and, and, and cities need is they need to replace those kind of industries that are contracting, retail and financial services. So communities want to raise their hand and participate and attract those high paying and good growing uh, technology companies. And those of us, uh, say, in the real estate business, we want to know where they're going and why they're going. Right. And it's those new technologies, new kind of companies that are kind of going to lead growth, really, for, for brokers and for cities uh, and, and for developers today, right? It, it absolutely is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned um, in this report, which I think is, is, is really interesting, is that companies are looking a lot at the culture right, of the market that they're moving into. Absolutely. So, you know, those that took the time to, say, read the Amazon's request for proposal, which is one of the strange things we decided was important to do, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people jumped in and tried to just handicap, you know, who were, who were going to be the competitors without mm -hmm. understanding. And so Amazon did a few things. And in that RFP, two of the, the most emphasized things were, they're, they're, were, number one was, we have a workforce problem. Mm -hmm. Number two was, we have a unique culture. And where we go, we want that culture to fit very comfortably. So if you're you know, polka dotted, wearing striped shirts and, uh, and orange ties or whatever, that's totally okay with Amazon. And mm -hmm. we don't want to go to a location where that's not acceptable. So that, that really is a, a, a big issue for them. And I think was maybe something that was um, underestimated in some of the competitors for, uh, for yeah. the Amazon site. Yeah, and you said there was 238 cities that responded. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the other thing why it's always important to read the RFP is, yeah. is those of us in real estate know. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things in the RFP said, we're, we're really primarily focused on cities with a million and more in population. Well, there's only 53 of those, but we had 238 <laughs> raise their hand and say, we, we want you here. And I, I think that was really telling. It wasn't that, you know, 180 something didn't read the RFP. It's that I think a lot of secondary cities that are, that are growing rapidly um, or that have a stereotype that hasn't been, uh, you know, reset or the, you know, the image reset wanted to raise their hand 
and say, you need to think of us in a different light. And like my favorite example is Tucson, Arizona, right? They sent a cactus to, uh, to Seattle. Well, Tucson wasn't thinking that, you know, Amazon was going to plant the cactus and try to grow it in a rainy weather. What, what uh, Tucson really wanted them to do is pay attention to Arizona, Uni University of Arizona, and the kind of STEM workforce they're creating and their infrastructure and supply chain and, and all of that type stuff. And so I think those cities that were less than a million that competed are going to find that it was very beneficial to have done that. Yeah, and then you have a, at the time of this article, and I guess it's, you can update it a little bit, but you had kind of eight cities that were kind of ones to watch? Yeah, so when, I, when it first came out in September, I think first week of September, the RFP came out, and so I had to do a speech down in, in Tampa, Florida, the second or third week of, of September to the REACT Group, Real Estate Investment Advisory Council, and they were hoping I was going to come down to Tampa and tell them that Tampa was going to be one of the contenders, and I had to tell them, not, not so much, you know, one, we've just kind of getting ready to go through some hurricane stuff here and, you know, that's probably going to be an issue. And so I threw out really my, my top five that I stuck with all along, never changed, and uh, they were Atlanta and uh, Northern Virginia, the D.C. region, Toulouse. I felt they checked the box on just about everything. They each had one minor, you know, minus. Uh, mm -hmm. Northern Virginia, a little bit expensive, cost of living not the cheapest compared to here to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And Atlanta was really that, that awful C word, you know, congestion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then my wild cards were if, if Atlanta or Northern Virginia fumble the ball, that it might surprise people where I think that the next three contenders are. And they were Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Columbus, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee. And those that did their homework on looking at Amazon's culture, looking at the importance of supply chain and logistics to them, where the, where the bulk of the middle market type companies that are at the heart of, of, uh, of Amazon's business model, where those are located and whatnot, and then the workforce, the universities, you know, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and mm -hmm. Vanderbilt, um, you know, you look at Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, that those three would be Pittsburgh, Columbus, and Nashville. And I said, if there's, if there's a tie for fifth, I would throw Orlando in. If they're going to pick a Florida market, I really felt Orlando with airport, the university, University of Central Florida, the workforce, uh, pulling all the workforce out of the Space Coast and NASA. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then, you know, I think a lot of the others, you know, I think the Carolinas are very strong contenders, but, you know, they had a bathroom issue they're trying to get over. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was pretty amazing to me that Raleigh got thrown into the final 20 mix. Um, I felt Texas uh, was a strong contender. I think if Amazon weren't really trying to get closer to the east and into an eastern time zone, that places like uh, you know Denver and Phoenix uh, would would have been a stronger contender. And I still think that you know Dallas is kind of a sleeper out there. Mm -hmm. That you know they've been very quietly under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, I think Miami is kind of a head fake. Um, L.A. No way. <laughs> <laughs> um, if they're trying to get out of the West Coast, they're they're, they're not going to stay. You know, just go south. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned too in the report that I found uh, very interesting, and, and I think even if you, d you care nothing about the Amazon HQ2, I think just how they've done it, right, and, and, and what's important to companies today is important uh, to all of us. And you mentioned a lot of companies are kind of looking east and kind of looking at maybe into that golden triangle. Yeah, so we talked about, we coined that term, the Golden Triangle. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you look at a map of the U.S. in the Bureau of Economic Analysis breakdown of the seven or eight regions, uh, if you triangulated the Great Lakes to southwest to the southeast, um, that triangulated region is about half of our U.S. GDP. It also, within that tri Golden Triangle region, is 80% 
of all corporate expansions, relocations, and new manufacturing announcements have been in that triangle in the last three years. Uh, it also is the home to the National Center for Middle Market Companies. So they're about 40% of the GDP. These are those smaller companies that are, the institute was housed at Ohio State University, interesting in Columbus, uh, and incubated by Site Selection uh, Magazine. And these are the companies that are really growing from about 10 million, 10 billion in revenue to 100 billion. And that's the heart of what Amazon wants to hit. They're the businesses are growing rapidly. They're those unicorns that hit a billion in valuation and grow to super unicorns like an Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so they're really focused on, on, that, on that element. Yeah, and that triangle runs all the way down, incorporates all of what, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, yeah, all the southeast. Alabama, yeah. yeah. Basically the south, really, if you just, you know, almost uh, the Carolinas, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, um, and then all the way up really Ohio, um, you get, you grab Pittsburgh and the kind of, Pits we, we adopted Pittsburgh into really the, the right part. Yeah. <laughs> They're not part of the, the northeast anymore. <laughs> yeah, and when you look at, at, at picking a winner for investing in real estate or uh, moving your company or are building and developing real estate, you know, I think in the old days, maybe we kind of looked at affordability, right, and space and rates, and yeah. could you get a corporate headquarters building in a great location with low taxes? But it's really more now in the kind of the new economy about the workforce, isn't it? Absolutely, interesting mm -hmm. uh, pickup on your part there. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think about it, it used to be, you know, like um, my corporate facilities, my cost, the real estate conditions. So one of the things we, we looked at in the paper I followed for a long time is, a, is an, old, uh, an old survey by, done by Atlas Van Lines. And mm -hmm. so for 50 years, they've been studying why companies relocate. And so it used to be very high, one or two real estate conditions were very high on there. And in the last uh, three years, real estate conditions has fallen to the bottom of the top five. And number one has been workforce. That 80% of the time why companies relocate is they're trying to get to that workforce. So that tells us the metrics are changing. It's not about concessions. It's not about the cheapest rent. Um, it, it's not about demographics or traffic counts or any of that type stuff. Is if I, if I get a great deal on a new headquarters building, it does me no good if I can't get my workforce there because the real estate facilities, believe it or not, as you know, Michael, only account for maybe about 5% of the operating costs of a business. Mm -hmm. So if the bigger part is half of it's in your workforce, you got to get that right. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's well said. And, uh, you know, I think it's only going to become more important now as the uh, unemployment keeps to continues to decrease. You know, we're probably going to have more wage growth. Wouldn't you expect as economists that now we'd have more wage growth as this job market gets tighter? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked a little earlier about um, one of my favorite things is so all of you that are using, you know, the, the, the government made up a monthly jobs report <laughs> for your labor input model. Uh, it's time to retire it and, and put it somewhere else. One of my favorites today is uh, LinkedIn. So 146 million of us have a, have a LinkedIn account. It covers a span of about 50,000 skill sets, everything from, you know, welders to doctors, real estate professionals. And uh, each month they break that down and they track what we're doing. And they're picking up over 3 million job changes that are happening every month across mm -hmm. skill sets. And they now have a skill set uh, gap analysis they do. And they show where the demand for certain skills are, in, are strongest and, and where they don't have that talent. So, you know, entities that are looking today, where do I get the talent that I need? They're, they're deeply studying that. So it's not just kind of, Amazon's highlighting not just how you go out site selection, but maybe some of the metrics are really going to change now. Yeah. So what should we think about if we're a, a city leader, uh, economic leader in a city, or, or we own office buildings, or we're in commercial brokerage or, or law, and we're helping these companies, and we're trying to help them get into 
the right locations or maybe assume where are they going to go, where it's going to be the strong growth. What should we think about uh, differently than we maybe have in the past? Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, in the in the past, I'm 33 years into my career, we kind of take for granted, you know, we'll go on, you know, old school Wikipedia or whatever and think we know about a company or we'll read their, you know, their 10Q or 10K. And you, you don't, you can't begin to scratch the surface of really what's going on in that company. So I really encourage, step one, if you're, if you're a city or a community or a real estate broker that's really targeting or in the hunt for a company that's looking expanding, go visit them, right? Sit down with some of the executives, um, see what the culture is. I mean, look at look at the office space here. It's, it's a very different type of workforce. Um, look at, you know, things like congestion, look at the universities, you know, look at the type of skill set. So you may have a great university, but it's not producing any of the STEM talent that a tech, a tech uh, company needs. So I, I really encourage, go, go visit, go look at how they operate today. Spend some time in interviewing with what, what they don't like, what they're looking for, and understand a lot more about their changing dynamic of the workforce. Because many companies are transitioning today from the, you know, I call it AI-cation, the artificial intelligence process of taking over everything. Um, and, it, and it means a different workforce. It means how we work, you know, what we can do, remote, the types of stuff, the types of space we need, the bandwidth that we need. And you really need to do your homework. The, I think the homework process is a lot more intense today. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Well, back to the HQ2 for a moment. Who, who do you pick as a winner? Who do you think <laughs> is going to come out on top or maybe the top three? Yeah, so my top five hasn't changed, although one of my top five I've kind of disqualified. Unfortunately, I think, I think Atlanta shot itself in the foot when I said it's Atlanta and Northern Virginia DC's to lose. I think Atlanta unfortunately did shoot itself in the foot. Um, it, it let itself get sucked in in both between you know Delta uh, responding to the you know the NRA and the unfortunate shooting down in um, in Florida, South Florida, and then our new lieutenant governor who wants to be governor weighing in with the legislature and taking away an incentive that really scared you know, if you think about Amazon. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, Amazon's a fairly, you know, coming from a fairly liberal um, side of the country, mm -hmm. uh, a very all-inclusive culture. And, um, you know, they're, they're very concerned, how does that culture fit? And then I think what the Lieutenant Governor did here in Georgia, unfortunately, scared the Dickens out of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was worse than uh, not allowing transgender bathrooms in North Carolina. Yeah. So I think Atlanta's out. I think it's Northern Virginia's to lose at this point. They checked the mark on so many things. It's gonna come down, can they deliver on the site that connects them with Metro Transit? Yeah. Because the cost of living is such there, millennials are gonna need to be able to shift transportation costs to housing costs. So if you can use Uber and Metro Transit, you don't have 10% of your income going to transportation, uh, and you can put that into the housing. Mm -hmm. After that, I think it's really, I, see, I think that Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Columbus, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee are really uh, a top one, two, three after a Northern Virginia. I also think that a Dallas is a very quiet sleeper that's sitting there. Um, Dallas does a lot right, Texas does a lot right. The business environment's very good. Um, and so I think, you know, if they don't go completely east, I think if it's a western market, my bet's that it would probably be more like a, a Dallas and a Texas. Denver said they don't want it. Um, I love a Phoenix, except they're just not in the right time zone and they can't figure out which time zone they're in on going on and off daylight savings. Mm -hmm. But I think it's uh, probably Northern Virginia's to lose at this point. And then I think uh, Pittsburgh, Columbus, and um, Nashville are my three, one, two, three surprise picks. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons you have so many uh, cities, I guess, in the east is really about the kind of where the customers are for really for most it, any company and the and the gross domestic product everything that's kind of going on in the east and southeast yeah i have to tip my hat you really read the paper deep <laughs> so one of the things we had deep in the paper was we we looked at 
when companies relocate, generally companies like to be near their customers. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, why is Amazon doing a second headquarters? Most companies just have one. Why do they need a second one? And what we discovered was Amazon has about 860,000 business customers in the Western United States. So from Denver and the Rocky Mountains all the way west. In the east, just on the east coast states, they have more than that. They're at 865,000. And then if you throw in the central part of the country, really that, you know, Pittsburgh, Columbus, all the way down through the mid-south uh, to the Gulf, there's over another half million. So Amazon today has between a million three and a million four business customers in the central midsection of the U.S., Midwest, and the east, mm -hmm. compared to 860,000. And the growth rate, if you're in that golden triangle, which is that area, and that's where companies are expanding, that's where your national center for middle market, that's where your heart of growing 10 billion to 100 billion companies are, it really makes sense, that's where you're gonna be. And it also, if you look at the universities and the cost of education, mm -hmm. so if you're trying to get that STEM workforce, and, they, and they're coming out of, a, say, a, a Massachusetts University or a California University, they're coming out with a lot of student loan debt, very expensive. They come out of a university like here in Atlanta with a Hope Scholarship, where if you get a B-plus average through high school, you get a free ride through the uh, tuition bill. So you come out of, say, a Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, um, or you go through some of the Florida schools that have a similar type program, mm -hmm. and you're almost debt-free, and you got that, that talent. Um, so your workforce, not only is it there in place, it's coming out relatively debt-free, it's very affordable, and they're pretty close to international airports. They like to travel and go anywhere they want. So. Yeah, and if that's the number one issue, and it seems like it's going to grow uh, with workforce and, 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 getting, and, and getting workforce, that, that seems like it's gonna continue. What about the expansion of the ports uh, on the East Coast? Does that have anything to do with relocation today? I think it does. Uh -huh. So for a long time, it goes back to my, my days at uh, Collier's. I was their chief economist. And we developed a number of years ago as the Panama Canal expansion started. What's really going on? Is, is it really a driver? Uh, is it really going to change LA and Long Beach and the West Coast? And it was really more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And so I believe we're in the process of remaking our whole supply chain. And we're going from one that was concentric in the West Coast to more the East Coast. Um, so all of our ports have been deepening, um, modernizing. We have right to work um, uh, states, so we don't have the same union issues that they've encountered in California. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you look at what's happening in our ports and also access to the Suez Canal, mm -hmm. which is it's actually growing faster than the Panama Canal that it's expanded. Mm -hmm. So we're a straight shot, we're more efficient, um, we're about 40 to 50% less cost. And the other thing that's interesting is if you go back to if 70% of the U.S. population lives east of the Ohio-Mississippi Valley, and it's been that way since World War II, why did we put a supply chain in Southern California? Yeah. Well, it was kind of after World War II. If you think about it, after World War II, we had this new thing called an interstate system, mm -hmm. so trucking worked really well. Um, we didn't have any people driving on it because we were still driving on Route 66. So if a truck driver fell asleep for 10, 15 minutes, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> Today, they blink their eyes, you know, mm -hmm. and they've just killed about 10 people. We didn't have an EPA, so di diesel emissions wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. And think about what was e-commerce coming out of World War II? It was a Sears catalog, yeah. right? What is it today? It's in, it's in Memphis, Tennessee, yeah. and Louisville, Kentucky, where UPS yeah. and FedEx are. So everything we're trying to do is connect through that, and we're shifting from trucking as a mode of transit, right, with all the problems in trucking, to rail. And all but one of our seven Class One railroads moved from Canada through the Great Lakes on down into uh, the Gulf and the East Coast. So if we're moving and having more dependence on rail, and you need more of that intermodal connectivity, 
really the mid part of the country from the Great Lakes down to the southeast is where it's at. So again, I think, you know, Amazon's all about logistics, it's efficiency. Mm -hmm. It's not just stuff in a department store. They're moving into grocery, they're moving into media. Yeah. I mean, they're gonna move into everything and where that population and growth is is where they're gonna wanna be. Yeah, well, I uh, wanna ask you about economy, interest rates. I mean, if you're running a, a business, you don't kinda wanna get a prediction on the economy with the, you being here as an economist. Uh, especially now with your CCIM uh, leadership. I want to get your take on that. But we're going to take a short break. Stay with us. We'll have more on the economy, on interest rates, and what to expect moving forward. Stay with us. I'm Michael Ball, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit realcrowd.com. Choose between core, core plus, value add, or opportunistic. Visit realcrowd.com. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what if analysis. Visit getvaluate.com. That's getvaluate.com. Are you a commercial real estate broker? Check out Apto, the leading web-based CRE software for managing contacts, properties, listings, and deals. Act on the information in your CRM to strengthen your relationships and grow your business. Visit apto.com slash CRE show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CRE show. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Invest alongside real estate experts, sponsors who have a successful track record and skin in the game. It's as easy as one, two, three. Learn about the deals, make your investment, and grow your financial wealth. Visit arborcrowd.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Promote your business to the U.S. commercial real estate industry. Click advertise at the show website, CREshow.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by GetValuate.com. Check it out. It's really good investment property analysis that you can share with friends and colleagues online. Well, our show topic today is site selection in the new era. My guest is Casey Conway. He's chief economist with the CCIM Institute. And Casey, it's really interesting when you think about relocation and what's going on with, with Amazon. And I think everyone's concerned about, uh, in commercial real estate industry, about the economy. And it seems like we've been in this great cycle for a long time. It seems like things are, are looking pretty good. Where are we in the cycle? As an economist with a focus on real estate, uh, you know, where do you think we are? 
Hey, great question. You know, and um, just in, in honor of you being here today, I'm still very bullish on the economy. <laughs> so I, I write a weekly economics column for the University of Alabama. And uh, one of the things I do is I have a bulls and bears scoreboard. So I have to name the bull Michael, right? And, and I track all the economic reports that come out in, in a running total. And so that running total here through uh, start of April was we've had 75 economic reports and 45 of them have just knocked the cover off the ball in terms of bullish and optimism and only 30 have been, um, have been bearish. So if you look at the data in the reports, it's telling us the economy is very bullish. Going beyond there, I like to look at, at forward-looking kind of indicators. So the things I look at are things like the NFIB's National Federation of Independent Businesses uh, Small Business Index. So it had been stuck in the 80s and 90 range, you know, for for years, right? Going through the Great Recession and coming out. And after Trump's election last year, it popped above 100 for the first time in, in about eight years. And um, in, in just last month, it made, a, it made its second highest reading ever. It hit 107. The last time we hit 107, in terms of small business being optimistic and wanting to lease real estate and expand, mm -hmm. was 2005. So the small business folks are saying, look, we finally have got deregulation. Uh, we finally have taxes where we need them to be. We're just so happy we're going to go buy GEICO insurance, right? <laughs> the other one I look at is the home builders because jobs fuel home building, home building in, in those jobs fuels pulls commercial real estate, right? The commercial real estate follows the rooftops. And so the home builders, uh, the NHAB, National Association Home Builders Housing Market Index, every month they survey all the builders and they say, how are you doing? What about traffic and closings? And the home builders said, we're so happy, we're ready to go buy two new pickup trucks and three new bass boats, right? To replace all those that we had to sell on Craigslist in 2009, right? Um, and so they have an index and uh, above 50 means home builders are happy. In December last year, it hit 74 and we've been above 70 ever since. That 74 reading was the second highest ever since 1998. So small business and housing, which were the two things that went into the doldrums, are just on steroids. They're very happy. So that's a fundamental that I think is spilling over in the economy. We've yet to be really feel the effect of the tax uh, law. It's just kind of kicking in right now. Yeah. This day is tax day, right? People are starting to, to figure it out. So I'm very bullish on the economy. And I think when people think about the volatility that we've had since February and, and, and whatnot, it all started on Groundhog Day. It was all the Groundhog's fault. What he saw was not his shadow. What he saw was the Fed raising interest rates right. four more times this year. Right. And I think that's the big thing. What's happening now that's triggering this market volatility is what we've been praying for for a decade. It's called growth. And with growth comes volatility, and with it comes higher interest rates. The Fed can normalize things. And it's been a decade since we've had to figure out how do we function in a rising interest rate environment. Yeah. So if those of us in commercial real estate know that if interest rates are rising, eventually the cap rate has to go up because of the cost of capital. It lags about a year or two. So if that, if that cap rate goes up, what's the only other element in the ERV formula that I have that can mitigate a decline in value? It's net operating income. Yeah. So we've really got to be paying attention, doing our homework. Can we really grow rents? What costs can we contain? all of those type issues. And so I think that's what the market's trying to figure out, whether it's equities discounting a dividend at a higher interest rate or the bond market or real estate people or REITs trying to figure it all out. It's how do we function in a rising interest rate environment? And the answer is, it's not gonna be cap rate compression anymore. Yeah. That's, that game is up. Yeah. It's how do you grow NOI? Yeah, it's gonna be demand for the real estate. And you think the job market's gonna continue to improve? Absolutely. Okay. So I look at that LinkedIn, go look at the LinkedIn month over, the year over year for every month, through the first part of this year has been 20% job increases. And the ADP, I look at, you know, every time the monthly jobs report comes out. So the ADP comes out the Wednesday before that first Friday. So I pay attention to that. By the time BLS revises its numbers over the course of a year, 
it has historically come in right on top of ADP. So why wait for all of that bad news on Friday and those revisions? Go with ADP. Uh, uh, Challenger Gray, the job cuts, comes out next, and it tells us who's cutting and who's not cutting, and that's a very good news story. And Thursday we get the weekly jobless claims, which has been very good, 200,000 or less. And then we get the LinkedIn's jobs report. And then what you do then is take your clients playing golf on Friday and don't let them watch the made-up government job numbers. Because my formula for the government's job numbers is BLS minus L equals BS. <laughs> that's my economic equation for the day. Yeah. So, so you expect then, I guess, if you expect employment to continue to rise, then I guess you expect uh, uh, retail to, to continue to improve, or at least online retail, and demand for most types of real estate to continue to, to do well? Yeah, so retail's an interesting question. So there's lots of debate. It's the retail apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's not. The National Federation of Independent Business and the IHL group did some really good research for the uh, ICSC regional um, idea exchanges. And what they found out is if you took the thousand leading brand retailers in the country today, right, we're led by, the, by some media to tell us that every store is closing, right? And what they found is that for every retailer that's closing a store, there are 2.7 new store openings. So that's a pretty impressive number. Now, it's not the same department stores. We're not opening Macy's and Toys R Us, right? right. It's a different type of formula. And the formula that I use is it's one part selling stuff and nine parts experience. And a good example is you look at um, Top Golf, mm -hmm. right, and what they do and, and what it's going on. If you look at Arthur Blank's, uh, the PGA Superstore, mm -hmm. right, they sell stuff, but it's nine part. They got a golf pro there. They can customize equipment. It's not about just going in and buying some golf clubs or golf balls. It's mm -hmm. about the experience. So um, I'm not, I don't believe that retail's dead. It's a different type. It's got to have more experience to it. It's more complex to do because from the finance world, we're so accustomed that we get that national tenant and that credit grade, but the tenants that are going into mixed use and experience, they don't have the credit ratings yet. So is the capital really going to say, yeah, we're, we're for all this new hip type of retail, but it has no national tenant, it has no credit behind it, how are we going to underwrite and finance yeah. it? Well, it's interesting because if you think that the deployment's going to continue to be strong, we're going to have more demand for a lot of properties. I guess if you're trying to decide the buy-sell decision or, or where to buy or where to sell, um, you kind of look at that, that growth and, and what do you expect for NI growth, NOI growth there. But also we've got rising construction cost, right? So if you, you look at replacement costs or maybe there's going to be less new supply that can compete with some of these properties. So looks like the forecast becomes uh, more involved today. It does, and I think if you look at you know, how far we've come and all the, the things, the fundamentals are very much in place. We don't have any of the bad stuff that we had going into 2007 or nine. Yeah. Here's my things that I worry about. If I'm in business, I'm trying to figure out. So, number one, I'd worry about the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. I think that's a wild card that could undo all of the benefit that business has gotten psyched up about and the tax returns and, and benefits and everything else. Number two, those black swan global events, a trade war, do we really implement the tariffs? What happens with Syria, the geopolitical things? We forget about those things and how they sneak in. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the tariffs and trade war devastates agriculture, automobile manufacturing, all of our port stuff. It has a big impact. And does that do that 
short term or long term or both? So I believe if you look at it, most tariffs and trade war situations, people realize pretty quickly that was a really dumb idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's probably a one year type of a disruption. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a construction loan on a big industrial warehouse that's waiting for activity from the port that somebody puts on hold, that affects your, you know, your construction financing and when you can roll that into a mini perm. So I think that's where you got to think about your staying power. The other thing is you mentioned on the on the inflation costs. You know, a year ago, if you looked at last August, September, we were seeing construction inflation running four to five percent, right? Shortages already. The two hurricanes hit Her Harvey and Irma. Those were two Hurricane Katrinas in one year. First time we'd ever had that happen. We're now seeing construction costs of about 10% a year. So if you're starting a new project today, not only do you got to worry about what the interest rates and cap rates going to be two years out, but do I have 10 or 20% construction costs? So if I go in at an 80% loan to cost deal and I come out two years from now and I'm at 100% loan to cost, I've really got hope for some magic dust on that NOI to make it all work. So I think those are the risks I'm looking at, the, the impact of rising interest rate, inflation costs and those black swan events, and we, we better dial into what's happening in midterm elections. All this good news could go away very quickly. Yeah, well, it sounds like you kind of added two more barriers to entry for a new supply to compete with your existing buildings if you've got higher construction costs and, and higher rates and, and maybe even more tentative banks. It seems like uh, the Fed's coming to some real estate uh, to their banks and saying, hey, Let's, let's quiet down the real estate loans. Are, are you hearing that, or how, how does the Fed and the banks feel about yeah, it? Yeah, the Fed is always worried about commercial real estate. It's kind of that, that thing that always creeps up and bites them in the butt. <laughs> they can never be ahead of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like bless their hearts, <laughs> as we would say down here in the South. And, you know, they've been forecasting that multifamily is going to implode for three years, and it hasn't. They weren't yeah. paying attention to the fundamentals. The jobs of permits number was well above five or six to one, saying we can absorb it. We just can't absorb any more $4 square foot multifamily, the luxury. We need more of the mid-price point and where the millennials can move into. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times, you know, the, the Fed and the regulatory world is largely academic and they don't have enough balance with the industry experience. So my five years there, 2005 to 10, really taught me it was 99.9% .9 academic in theory and they were afraid to talk to industry because industry might tell them that the thesis of their PhD is now, is now no longer valid. <laughs> so they don't want to talk to you about it. Yeah. But that's why I say look at things like LinkedIn, look at NFIB, small business index, look at the home builders. Those are your forward-looking indicators. And when you see home builders pull back in, right, which they're not doing, when you see small business say we're not optimistic anymore, you've got about six months before you see that really ripple effect through. So those are your leading in. Look at the forward-looking indicators. Yeah. So how long do you think the good times are ahead of us then? So if we don't have a bad black swan event, if Trump doesn't get uh, indicted and impeached and, you know, if Mueller's investigation keeps going on, I mean, honestly, we're about 105 months in this recovery, but it was the weakest ever. We could go another 100 months if we didn't have a big disruption, although history tells us that every decade we have at least one, one recession, right? Or if right. the yield curve inverts, which is about getting close to doing between the two-year and the 10-year, we should go into a recession. But the fundamentals are so strong in place. And I think what people forget is this recovery, although it's long in duration, it was really weak in terms of any meat on the bone. Yeah. And it was, it was only 10% of all of, of the 360 MSAs had 10% total job growth in that decade. 
So you know, we got 90% that haven't even participated that are just getting ready to participate. Yeah, I mean, that slow growth almost just really seems more comfortable and safer. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, what the Fed did by buying and putting so much on his balance sheet, and that's the other thing to watch with the Fed. Don't watch so much rate increases, but watch what they're doing in their balance sheet. They want to sell down a trillion dollars on their, on their balance sheet, 400 billion this year, 600 billion next year. So when you add all of the deficit spending that we're doing, what we're saying to the rest of the world is, we, have, we are not a savings nation, and we're first, and you save a lot. Please don't spend any money in your country. We would like all that savings, and we'll give you a 50 basis point spread over a two-year and a 10-year. How do you like those numbers? Mm -hmm. And I think they raised their hand sometime in February and left one finger up and said, no, thank you. And that's what's really driving the interest rates. It's not an overheating of the economy. 3% GDP is not overheating. It's our deficit spending. If we don't get that under control, the rest of the world, which is financing it, is what's going to say, try a four-year, try a 4% or a 5% yeah. 10-year treasury. Well, final question. What would you estimate that mortgage rate increases would be for commercial property owners, say, a year from now? We're, what, late April now, uh, a year from now in April 2019. Yeah, so my forecast has been, and, and I, I put this back in December after the tax law was passed, I said we will very quickly in the first half of 20, 2018 get to a 3% 10-year treasury. And I think if it hadn't been for some of the global events, we would have already been there. We're around a 280, 285, flirting with it. I think by late spring, when we get the second quarter GDP numbers in, the, the Fed's going to follow through on all, rate, on all three rate hikes, and I think the long bond market will, will move us back above three. I think there's real risk that by the end of this year, early next year, we could be at a 4% 10-year treasury. But here's the good news. How do you like the economy in 2004 and five? Yeah. Pretty good? Yeah. We did 16 rate hikes, and we took the 10-year Treasury to a 5% by mid-2006. Yeah. I did a briefing to Bernanke, and I said, you're causing the subprime housing crisis because as you do 16 rate hikes, people are now asking the question, how do people afford the rate reset? But we went 16 rate hikes in one of the best economies we ever had. We got back to a 5% 10-year Treasury. We can get back to a 5%. Normal is about a 55 to 6 and we can function just fine. We just forgot how to do it. So yeah. don't freak out. Yeah. We got a lot of room there. And plus, like you said, if we have good NOI growth from all this demand, yeah. maybe we have less new supply competing with us. Yeah. Maybe we're all doing the Snoopy dance for a long time. Casey, thanks for joining thank us today. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor. Good information. Thanks for being with us. And thank you for being with us out there all over the country, all over the world, wherever you're uh, watching or listening to the show. We appreciate you being with us. And uh, you're welcome to share the show and also comment and let us know what you think. And, and get in touch with us. We'd like to connect with you and hear from you. You can find all our social media contacts at CREshow.com. Well, thanks for joining us. Be sure and join us next week. And until then, be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions, Arbor Crowd, Invest Alongside Experts, Get Valuate, Online Investment Analysis, Real Crowd, Crowdfunding with Professionals, Apto, the Ultimate Brokerage Software, The News Funnel, Real Estate News Personalized, CommercialAgentSuccess.com, Video Training from Michael Bull. To access these great companies or for more videos, podcasts, and articles, visit CREshow.com.